Well, good morning, church. How are we feeling? All right, that's cheerful. That's good. My name is Bryce. I have the great privilege of being the youth pastor here. Let me tell you how my morning went. <clears throat> You'll see. This morning I get up a little early. I get up half an hour earlier than I would normally need to to be prepared for a Sunday like this because I was up north on Sunday on Lake Superior with no Wi-Fi and couldn't tune in to join you online. And I hadn't had time yet to watch Pastor Eric's message, and I know he's a great preacher. And so I tune in this morning, bright and early, excited to hear a great teaching from the Lord. Those of you who were here last week know that the first 15 minutes of Pastor Eric's message was just a roast session about me. I couldn't believe it. I'm like ready to encourage you and say, what a great word, brother. Like, let's build upon that. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, I had to switch with Pastor Bryce because he doesn't have his life together. (laughs) No, don't mind me. I'm just moving my whole family to Adrian this weekend, but I got it. (laughs) And he goes, oh yeah, Pastor Bryce, he's super competitive. Oh, Pastor Brian beat him in cornhole. I could have beat him in cornhole. And then we played basketball and I still almost beat him. Didn't appreciate the roast session. (laughs) The rest of it was good, but I'm not going to give you as much credit as I would normally. (laughs) So that's how my morning started. I'm excited to be with you. I do have a great word for you. Pastor Eric did have a great word for you last week. We're just going to continue going with the life of Peter. Um, But first, before we jump into that, today is what we call Move Up Sunday. It is the final Sunday for our fifth going into sixth grade kids down in the lower level. Um, They're continuing to be invested in this morning, but afterwards we have um, for our upcoming sixth graders a ice cream reception in the event center. Yes. How many of you want to be going into sixth grade? (laughs) We need some ID. It won't work. In all seriousness, though, if you or someone you know has an upcoming sixth grader that's in the building, please make sure they're in the event center. Um, Some of our youth team will be there. A a number of our youth students will be there to answer questions. We just want to get to know them. Um, And let me talk on that for just a brief moment about why we do that and why that's important. Uh, One is just logistical. Like, we need to transition them from down there to up here with the rest of the congregation. But it's also a really cool, like, celebrating moment where they have accomplished the foundation blocks of their faith and development, and we get to celebrate them now and push them to a new level, not a more important level. Yes, as the youth pastor, I'm saying our ministry is not more important than kids. I know, I could take an easy blow there, but I just didn't, and I'm just going to say they're, they're equal. Um, I am favor ours, but we get to celebrate them moving into the next stage of uh, their life of the church, and um, I've got a few words for you as a congregation that I just want to share with you. I want to pray over those students And then just encourage you, if you have people in your life that are teenagers, 6th through 12th grade, that are not connected to the body, um, we've got a great program for them Wednesday night, Sunday mornings. Like, our youth ministry is incredible, and we have a great team, and students are growing and serving and learning and expanding. So get them plugged in. But let me just, um, let me bring up a familiar passage. And usually we, we tell this to the kids because they need to hear it. But I think we also need to hear it too because we can stifle what God's doing in their life if we don't get this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers. And when they say believers, they're talking about this, this setting. They can be an example to us in their speech, in their conduct, in their love, in their faith, and in their purity. And the reason I want you to hear that is because I believe it and I hope you do too. This next generation can model for us an authentic spirituality. Yes, they have flaws. No, they're not perfect. But we're not either. And they're doing some things right, both in kids' ministry and in our youth ministry. So let's be a people committed to that. Um, And let me just pray over the names of these students. And I apologize. It just may be an administrative error if we missed someone going into sixth grade. But here's our list of names. Would you join me in praying over these up-and-coming teenagers? Jesus, we thank you for Cody Hicks, and we just pray your favor upon him right now, Lord. We pray that you would speak to him. Lord, we pray for Gabby Garcia, Lord, that she would be the head and not the tail, that you would give her abundance and wholeness and health. Lord, we pray for Noah Thompson right now, that you would speak to him, that you would use him mightily. Lord, we pray for Gage Thayer, Lord, that he would know you intimately, that he would know the plans and purpose you have for him. 
Lord, I pray for Ellie Griffiths right now that she would hear from you and know you. We pray for Jack Bowen that he would have a deep, intimate connection with you, Lord, that he would know you all the days of his life. Lord, we pray for Sophia Rink that you would protect her and care for her and watch over her. Lord, we pray for Evelyn Holbrook that you would speak to her, that you would use her mightily to reach her peers, and that you would do what only you can do in her life. Lord, we pray for Caleb Roberts that you would use him mightily, Lord, that you would take his gifts and passions and you would turn them into ministry, Lord. I pray for Cash Mariah Norton, Lord, that you would speak to her, that she would know you, she would know your love, and she would know your presence. We pray that these up-and-coming sixth graders, as they advance to the next stage of their church life, Lord, that they would be blessed, they would create new friendships, and that they would have an experience with your church that is only positive. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm excited. Please get them in the event center. Help me out. I know it's like herding cats but do the best and get them to the event center because we want to connect with them and love on them. Um, I think we're almost ready to jump in. Yeah. It's time to jump in to the Word of God. That was good. We can do better, but that was good. <laughs> Who's ready for a good word? Yeah. Um, thank you, Pastor Ryan and Kasha, for giving me the opportunity to share. Um, I love this, and thank you for trusting me. Um, I know you're watching online somewhere. We love you and miss you greatly, and can't wait to have you back. So we have great pastors. Amen? Amen. Amen. I've got to tell you a story. This one is one of my least favorite stories to tell, but it just needs to get out there. I was 16 years old. I had had my driver's license for maybe four or five months tops. I was a new driver. Yes, there's a crash, okay? <laughs> Just give you the end before we even get there. But my dad had a really nice Ford Fusion that he just had waiting for us as um, his kids. I was the second to be able to drive it. My brother drove it safely for years before I ever got to. And... There was a football trip. We were going on a football trip from the Lansing area to Muskegon, like about a two-hour drive. We are going up on a football camping trip for team bonding. And I'm excited. I'm one of the students on the team, or players on the team that actually has a driver's license and can drive. And so I told my coach, hey, don't worry, I can drive. No worries. And I fill out this waiver form, and I bring it to my dad, and he's like, what? Why'd you offer to drive? So I offered to drive his vehicle before I'd even asked my dad. First thing to not do. Um, then I finally convinced him, but he was telling me over and over, I don't know, Bryce, like you're still young. Like I know how you young whippersnappers do. You turn the music up, and, and we did. And he had really good bass in this car, so we really were blasting it. Uh, to very ungodly music, very loudly. Uh, I had my friend Nemo in the back. Cy was in the passenger seat, and we were just... We were having a good time. We're driving. I've got just one hand on the steering wheel because that's how you drive really cool. If you didn't know, that's how it's done. And so I'm doing that. We're in Muskegon. We're going from um, the, the water park to the campsite. And I'm looking back at Nemo and like we're rapping to each other and it's really fun. Is anyone having a hard time picturing that? <laughs> it happened, okay? I was cool once. Don't you forget it, Judah. So I'm driving, and of course, um, there's a, a car, like 10 cars ahead of me, and they like very abruptly slam on their brakes so that they can turn into a Dollar General. I don't know who's in that much of a rush to get to a Dollar General, but these people were. So they slam on their brakes, and they turn hard left to get into Dollar General. Every car behind, their reaction time got slower and slower and slower, and I'm already flying, not paying good attention, and I crash into the car in front of me. But what you don't know is that as my dad was handing me the keys to the Ford Fusion, his last words were, Bryce, please don't crash it. Drive safely. To which I did not reply, yes, dad, thank you. I pulled out my wallet, opened my driver's license, and showed it to him and said, dad, this says the state of Michigan thinks I'm a safe enough driver to drive your vehicle. <laughs> That was the only thing going through my mind as I crashed into that Toyota. I, 
ate my words that day. I felt like an idiot. My dad told me he knew exactly that. He saw the scene before it ever happened. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And I was so arrogant to believe that I had it under control and could do it in my own power without his help or without heeding his words, without turning the volume down. He saw it way ahead of time. He knew, and I ate my words that day. Similarly, we have the Apostle Peter, who is arrogant and bold and loud and sporadic and quick. Before the war even starts, he's cut someone's ear off. Um, he's constantly like overstepping his role on the group. Um, there's a lot of wonderful things about the Apostle Peter. I'm not just picking on him in vain, but I just want you to know like that me, what I experienced, Peter had a very similar moment. What happened for him we're at the, the Last Supper. This is the last time Jesus and the disciples are eating together. And Jesus is telling them, like, this is the end. Like, he's giving them kind of some instructions on the church and things like that. And uh, he mentions to Peter that he's going to betray him three times before the rooster crows. Like, basically, before this is all done, you're going to betray me over and over and over. And you've probably heard that a few times, that story, but uh, basically, the betrayal is not identifying with Jesus. It's, it's this moment where Peter is like completely missing the mark when people say, hey, are you with Jesus, the guy who is getting uh, beaten? Are you with Jesus, the guy who was crucified? Are you with Jesus, the guy who's in the tomb? And he just flat out says, no, I'm not. I've never heard, never heard of her. Like, I don't know who this Jesus person is. Um, and that is what, that's how Peter responds, and then there's this moment, and Pastor Eric mentioned it in his, his message, it's this beautiful moment of um, Peter going back to his old ways, he's fishing, he's probably embarrassed about the way he behaved, there's shame, there's guilt caught up into that, and he um, is fishing, and Jesus calls out to him from the, sh- the shore on the beach, and Jesus has breakfast made, and he calls him out to cast his net on the right side. You know the scene. There's fish that get pulled up, and they, they bring it in, and he has the Forrest Gump moment, which is an unholy movie. I can't believe Pastor Eric mentioned that from the stage <laughs> last week. Just kidding. Um, but that's the scene. And the conversation that Jesus has with Peter in this moment where Jesus has come back to life, and he is um, he's talking with Peter face to face, the person he told would betray him, He did betray him. You just picture the shame and embarrassment. And this is what um, they talk about in this scene on the beach. It's uh, John chapter 21, verses 15 and 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. So you can picture what Peter's feeling. It's like, why are you repeating this? Like, yes, I love you. You know I love you. Of course I love you. And what he's trying to get Peter to realize is, okay, do I actually love you? And same moment before, no, I will never betray you. Now think about it, Peter. You say that now without thinking about it, but what's in your heart for real? And this moment was pivotal for Peter because it helped him completely, and we're going to look at this in, in the whole book of First Peter, but specifically chapter 5 this morning, like how this shaped the way Peter ministered throughout his years. Because right here we have a, a, a middle-aged to young Peter, and in the book of First Peter we're looking at old Peter, elder Peter, and we get to see a little bit of how this moment shaped him. And he says to him a third time, um, Peter was hurt the third time because he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him one last time, feed my sheep. He tried to get it into his head. Feed my sheep. Be a good shepherd. Love these people. Care for them. And it's just like my dad saying, drive slowly. Turn the volume down. Like, dad, I will drive slow. I will drive carefully. I I won't have the volume loud. No, Bryce, drive slowly. Turn the volume down. Be careful. It's this moment where Peter is, is being formed and shaped. And I promise you, I've never been in an accident or near an accident or anything like an accident since that moment. I drive like an 87-year-old grandma. <laughs> I promise you. Like, I really, I barely even break the speed limit most, like, ever. Like, ever. 
and not like the 10 miles over the speed limit, speed limit that you abide by, like the real speed limit. Yeah, gotcha. Why are we talking about this? I want to give you a little bit of insight into Peter's heart as he's writing the book of 1 Peter. And I even want to give you a little bit of insight to like what kind of literature was written back then. Keep in mind at this time, 95% of the population did not know how to read and write, except for maybe some pockets of Roman culture. So not everybody's reading their Bibles because the Bible hasn't been formalized yet. Um, there are Old Testament literature and scriptures that they're hearing in the synagogues, but by and large, people don't read. So to write a letter is kind of like the old guy, Pastor Eric, with his minutes. <laughs> he's talking about minutes and pagers. And he's like, when you, when you have like four minutes left in the month, like you don't want to send us like a text that's worthless. Well, uh, minutes cost X amount of dollars back then, but way back here in scripture, like to write a letter, thousands of dollars to get someone to officially endorse it and to transcribe it and just dis- distribute it to where it needs to go and to, to put it on a, a horse or whatever. However, they're getting this letter from Peter's hand or even his mind if he didn't write it himself. Um, it was very expensive. So what he's writing in the book of First Peter is super important. He didn't waste a single word. That's what, I think that's what I'm trying to communicate to you. And we get to see how this moment of Jesus telling him, feed my sheep, shapes that. Um, in the book of First Peter, we have, um, it's just five short chapters. Over 17 times you have language that is sheep, care for the flock, watch after the sheep. Um, like, be a good steward of those entrusted in you. Care for the little ones. Over and over and over, Peter is like looking at the church as an old man wanting to shepherd it well. So I think the message is simply this. Peter got the memo from Jesus to feed his sheep. And that's cool to look at this uh, passage in the Gospels in the book of John and then look at this passage in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 where there's a bunch of sheep language and know, okay, Peter got it. Like, Bryce is a better driver now. That, I'm trying to give you a parallel that helps you make sense of this, but um, Peter is sporadic and all these things. And I want to look at the overview of the book of 1 Peter for just a moment, and that will help us land at the teaching in 1 Peter chapter 5. You with me? All right. You have Peter encouraging the persecuted and the suffering. So one of the major things that he said, okay, this is going to cost me a lot of money to write this letter, so these words count. One of the things I need to mention is I see the persecution you're going through, and I want to encourage you. Your suffering is not for nothing. That's huge in the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter and pretty much every letter of the New Testament. One of the, most, one of the primary things people are going through is literally beating and suffering and being slaughtered for following Jesus. So he's writing to encourage so that we all don't break up. So imagine um, an anti-Christian group comes to the United States and they take over every city and they are literally just coming to churches that meet on Sunday morning. We have to take our website down. They're killing people that you know for following Jesus. That's something that Peter thought was important to say. Hey, keep meeting. Stick together. It's hard to picture that today, but that's the equivalent. Um, The other thing is holiness and correction for the leaders who are allowing sin. So let's say uh, Pastor Brian is um, like multi-mega site. He's got all these churches like Peter Wood that he's pouring into. And Pastor Ron is our lead pastor here now. Pastor Brian writes this letter to Pastor Ron and he says, get your stuff together, man. I hear everybody's living in sin at your church. Get the leadership going. We need to figure this out. That's the second thing that he really hits home. And Amanda did a great job talking about be holy, be set apart, uh, be different for Pete's sake. Um, And we've got the evil desires. There's an imbalance of marriage relations. That's that, I think it's chapter three, where we talk about the husband and the wife. Um, Husbands do this. Wives do that. Think about this. Peter thought it was so important to get marriage right, that he dedicated an entire big section of this letter to getting marriage and family right. Like, wives do this, husbands do this. He's not wasting any words here. We have to keep that in mind. He's not just writing about it because he thought about it one day. He noticed one of the major issues in our church right now is that marriages are failing. So husbands do this and wives do this. I'm going somewhere. Stick with me. Um... There's lots of hope about suffering. And then the final chapter, chapter 5, is it's a, a huge privilege for me to be able to preach this because what he's doing is he's, he's kind of creating a model for intergenerational ministry. 
He thought it was so important that the older and the younger do, the, do church well that he dedicated almost half of the, over half of this chapter to that. And I know First Peter chapter 5 has the verse about the roaming lion looking to devour, and we can talk about that. But what I want to focus on first is the first nine verses. Um, so let me, let me uh, read it to you. Verse 1 of, chap, of First Peter chapter 5 says this. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world as a fellow elder. Let's pause right there. When you're thinking about Peter, you're thinking about the guy who betrayed Jesus when his suffering was happening. Like in the midst of his suffering, he has betrayed Jesus. And he opens the book of First Peter with um, this like, He's not an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, like this big, he, he's a fellow elder. He's a fellow elder. He's one of us. He's not using his authority. He's actually coming in with a huge amount of humility. It's hard to know that from a first glance, but let me just tell you, like all of the commentaries say, it is amazing that Peter would say he's just a fellow elder, and it's embarrassing that he would mention that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ, because when he witnessed the sufferings of Christ, he bailed on Jesus right? You with me? The, do not betray me. You're going to betray me. You're going to betray me. You're going to betray me. Then he betrays him in his sufferings. So Peter is already setting the scene for this chapter with a ton of humility, vulnerability, transparency, and he's saying, hey, I, as the oldest guy amongst you, I have something to learn. And I think about Pastor Ron a lot when I, when I was been reading this, like the humility it, like it takes for him to come up to a younger person and say, hey, could you teach me something about this or that? Like, Pastor Ron, you're my hero, man. You are the epitome of a lifelong learner. So this is where Peter's at, and he is um, just coming at it with humility, and you can already tell there's, there's sheep and uh, shepherd and flock language in here. Um, but the structure of chapter 5, we have the first... Um, section verses two through five or four there are 70 words and these words are all dedicated to instructing the elders the older people the people with maturity the wisdom the people with 401ks the pastors the the people who are not downstairs or in the student section there are 70 words dedicated to you for the young whippersnappers there are only 13 words and their instruction is simple but keep in mind, this is so important to Peter that we get intergenerational ministry down right. And, and I'll just tell you that the title of my message this morning is, For Pete's Sake, Invest in the Next. Peter said, I'm going to take a bunch of time to instruct the older on how they need to act, behave, and lead. And the young whippersnappers, you've got just 13 words. And they're important, and they're simpler than you'd think, but they're very difficult for us as young people over here to get that right. But it's a big deal that we get intergenerational ministry down right. And so actually one of the things I want to do this morning, we're not there yet, but I want to give you kind of a history lesson on how the Capital C Church has interacted with adolescents, kids, and young people. And it it may surprise you that um, my job has only been around for about 30, 40 years. Like the professional youth pastor vocation is a very new thing, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So we've got all of these. Um, let me just read this to you so you know what it, what it looks like. But picture um, you're, you're in a church setting and someone's reading this and you've got all of the kids and youth in a room and you've got all the old people in the same room. They're kind of mixed in together. And Peter is like lecturing the older people. Picture a fight with your sibling where your sibling did all of the stuff wrong and then your mom goes, just yelling, yelling, yelling at them. And then they go, and you pick up your room. Like, they're just like, I gotta throw something to you because it's gonna look lopsided if I don't. That's almost what this looks like. So that's the scene. Here's Peter's instructions for uh, the older, the elders. Care for the flock that God has entrusted you with. This is First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you can get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over. Don't lord over it Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, there's more sheep language, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. 
Contrast that with this simple instruction, 13 words here. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. So the older, they have to care for the flock, watch over it willing, don't be grudgingly do it, uh, don't g- do it for personal gain, uh, don't lord over the people, uh, care for them, lead them by an example, um, look forward to the crown of glory at the end, not for something presently. Like he's got a lot of instruction for the elders, and I think that is okay. And I promise you my message for you this morning is not the next generation has it all figured out and you old guys need to get it together. That's not my message. And that's not Peter's message either. Peter's message is if we don't lead well, they will fall away from the faith. If we don't lead by example, they won't keep going. This is mission critical. And to Peter's credit, it seems like they got it together because 2,000 years later, we're the largest faith movement in the world right now. But it matters big, and it matters big time for us in the United States because the church overall is in decline right now. And in particular, the young core group of the church is in decline as well. So we're going to figure that out. We're going to talk about it. We're going to look at the biblical model. I'm going to give you some practical advice and some hope for you. Um, I am not an expert at Gen Z. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a know-all on how to do parenting, but I can give you some stuff that will probably help you think about how your sphere of influence, whether you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or working or retired, how your sphere of influence and responsibility can actually help the next generation. For Pete's sake, invest in the next. And let me just throw a plug out here for the men's group. Um, Jared, you're my hero, dude. What happens in men's group is similar to what happens in youth group. So in youth group, we've got uh, sixth graders being discipled by ninth graders, being discipled by seniors, and there are adults who are 20 and 40 and 70 all pouring into them. It's this beautiful intergenerational quilt happening in our youth ministry. I'm so for it. We're going to talk more about that. It's just, it's beautiful. Like, I literally, at our leadership retreat this weekend, started crying when one of our 20-year-old leaders was, like, sharing his brokenness, and one of our, Brian Penny, you're 30? 30? Yeah, Brian's 30. He's sharing with him what it was like to go through what this 20-year-old went through, and then he's talking about the stuff his kids are getting into, and Pastor Ron goes, hang on tight, buddy, it just gets... You're just getting started. Like, it's just this beautiful mosaic of intergenerational ministry. But what I love about what Jared Evans is doing, and it's contagious, let's do life together, men. If the men are leading strong, everyone else will follow. And that's not some, like, patriarchal, narcissistic thing. It's just like, men, let's take responsibility for what we're doing. And you've got men with young kids in the men's group. You've got men with graduated kids. You've got grandfathers. It's just this beautiful, like, You've got people who are just starting their careers. You've got people who are well into their career. It's beautiful what you're doing, Jared. And I know you don't get called beautiful enough. (laughs) But I appreciate it. And if you want to join the men's group, um, there may be a QR code on the screen. If not, you can go on our website to groups. Um, They're launching a fall initiative. They're trying to get all the men together, rally you, feed you food, and start to figure out how to do that together as a church. Jared, what you're doing is contagious, man. It's backed 100% by Bethany Student Ministries. I don't know if that means much, but we love it. All right. Buckle up. I'm going to give you a crash course to youth ministry history. Are you ready? So, way back when, before Jesus, there were youth ministries. It wasn't a Christian youth ministry because Jesus hadn't come yet. It was just the people of God following God's uh, plan And the hallmark of that era of youth ministry, or how we dealt with kids and youth in the faith, was something called the Shema. It is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and this gives you an idea of what discipleship looked like for young people way back when. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. You've heard this before. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. He gives instruction, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. 
make sure your kids get it. Talk about it as you're going into town to get water. Talk about it with them as you're in the field. Talk about it when you're at home lying down. Talk about it with your kids. Put it on your doorframe. This is why uh, Jeremiah 29:11 is plastered onto every Christian home. This right here. That is what ministry looked like for young people. Nobody was throwing cheese balls at anybody. Nobody was swallowing goldfish on a stage. There wasn't a rally. There wasn't a lock-in. There wasn't laser tag. It was just parents making sure that their kids understood that they loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. There was not a professional vocation of pastor for your kids or youth. And there's a lot of good and a lot of bad to both. So we're going to talk about it. So that's first. That's pre-Jesus. Then you've got the early church. Jesus comes on the scene. They try to do church like this, but if we did church like this, the Roman Empire would come in and slaughter us. So we do small groups, homes. We meet in homes. And what happens when you meet in homes? Uh, the kids vacuum before people show up, and they make a mess while people are there. And they, somebody falls and hits their head, and they start crying, and you have to break up small group. But it's really good, because Timothy Keller has a great study on this, and you have to pause. And they're just doing things in the homes with their kids. They're all there. They don't lock them in the basement. The kids are in the room. They're reading scripture together in these house churches. And that's kind of the vision that Jared has for, for the men's ministry and all, all of our small groups here at church. It's simple. The kids are here. They can talk. And, and some groups need to have the kids separate. And I believe in age-segmented um, youth ministry and kids ministry. But by and large, the early church, they just had them in the room. And when Peter is reading this letter to the group, he's literally saying to the elders and to you young people, they're all in the room. There's no indication that young people are ever anywhere that the people of God are not in Scripture. They're just in the room. So that was the model of the early church. But then we fast forward quite a ways and get to kind of the early U.S. church and even a little bit of the European church model back with like Susanna Wesley and Charles Wesley, if you're familiar with that, in-home discipleship model. Susanna Wesley is a baller. She's incredible. I, I think it's like 15 kids she raised in their home. They all went on to be like super influential pastors and musicians and worship leaders. And she's incredible. Um, early U.S., we have the Industrial Revolution. And with that comes a two-parent working force. Um, with that comes kind of latchkey generation and things like that. And then there's this emergence of pop psychology called stage theory. And stage theory has a lot of strengths. At the time, it was very underdeveloped. And essentially what it said is every stage of a person's life, they're going through very unique, specialized things. And the rest of what we're learning and doing doesn't apply to them because they're so little. And until they become 18 or really 25, when their prefrontal cortex is fully developed, nothing we teach them is going to stick. It doesn't matter. Why would we waste their time? Let's just let them play Nerf guns um, and then give them a two-minute Devo, and hopefully they'll catch some of that. You can kind of hear the disappointment that I have with that model. Um, there's a lot of pros to stage theory and developmental um, processes that are really, really important. Um, they help us uh, know what kids are struggling with, how they're viewing the world. There's a lot of pros to it. But back then, essentially, what the uh, psychologists were saying is adolescents are rebellious, they're not intelligent, they have to be coddled, and they have to be disciplined harshly because they're just trying to revolt and break free. Um, I am not, like, weird with, like, self-fulfilled prophecies, but I do know that, like, when you expect something to happen, there is a greater likelihood that it happens. Or if you're looking for some behavior, you will find it. And that's why one of my core uh, hopes for you as a person who wants to invest in the next is that you actually believe the best about this next generation. The uh, millennials are just on their phones and they don't do anything and they don't work hard. Well, guess what? There's like 40-year-old millennials now and like they're not all just on their phones. I'm not a fan of blanket statements about any generation, but specifically negative ones are like, well, gosh, if I'm being told every day that I'm lazy and I'm just addicted to my phone, like, maybe that's true. You know what I'm saying? Or like, Gen Z, they're, they're just grossly immoral. They're all in sexual sin and they blah, blah, blah. Like, some of them are, yeah, but not all of them. And if we are looking for it, we will find it. The story you tell is the true story to you. And I'm believing that there's a story about the next generation that's actually positive and encouraging. And, and I'm not saying, like, 
we're all doing that because by and large the church has gotten on board with reaching the young people now like capital c church but also our church is so for the next generation um i feel super blessed i'm excited about whoever becomes our new kids pastor because they're going to be super blessed like our pastors our church we're all in on investing in the next um and i i'm super proud to be part of it but anyways moving on we've got uh the industrial revolution and then in the 70s uh, a new movement comes along where we finally have organizations trying to deal with the parachurch movement head-on. And so what they do is uh, a guy by the name of um, Jim Rayburn in uh, the 40s to 70s goes after the adolescents at all costs in all forms, and he forms Young Life. You've probably heard of Young Life or Youth Crusades or Youth with a Mission or different organizations like this. Basically, the church said, we don't want anything to do with youth culture. Let's ignore that. Hope it goes away. And Jim Rayburn and all these organizations said, no, let's go to the schools. Let's bring pizzas. Let's have a rally on the football field. Let's play loud music. Let's swallow a goldfish. I've said that like three times. That was like a whole cultural movement in youth ministries where like you could convince like Jeremiah and Mauricio to swallow a goldfish for speed the light. And I don't know. That's like, it's a thing. <laughs> Look it up. Youth pastors swallows goldfish. You'll find a hundred videos on YouTube. I don't know why that was the thing. But anyways, then in, finally in the 80s, we, the church catches up. So the church was about 40 years behind. Yes, parachurch organizations like Young Life are an extension of the church, but they were doing it without us. And so in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, we now have uh, Bible colleges offering a youth ministry or kids ministry degree. You have paid full-time staff members for your youth or kids. And um, an unfortunate shift, and hear me, I'm not blaming anyone. An unfortunate shift is, okay, Bryce is a professional at this, so I can take it a little easy at home and let him disciple my kids. I have no interest in doing that. I want to partner with you as you disciple your kids. I want you to see yourself as the primary disciple maker in your home. And for the kids, yes, this is huge. And I think this is Peter's heart. Lead them by example. Take ownership. This is the ancient model with the Shema. The, I'm going to write this on the wall of my home and we're going to talk about it every day. We're going to talk about it when we lie down. We're going to talk about it when we walk on the road. We're going to talk about it in the car. We're going to play worship music in the car. Shout out to Kina and Jeff. You guys are blasting that always with your kids and I love it. Um, that's, that's the model that I'm more passionate about than a Wednesday night youth service that's really exciting and gets them hooked on Jesus. And, and yes, there are kids who come from homes and families that we minister to that parents don't know Jesus or a grandparent drops them off um, and their parents want nothing to do with what we're doing. But that's the exception and not the rule. The rule should be me as a parent, I take ownership for my kids and I'm going to disciple them and I'm going to learn to sit down and read scripture with them. I'm going to teach them the ways of the Lord. I'm going to ask them how they're doing in their dating relationships with purity and wholeness. I'm going to ask them about their digital habits. I'm going to find out if they're watching porn or not. I'm going to be right in the trenches with my kid and I'm not going to outsource it to some youth pastor. I'm going to take ownership for it. That's the model that I'm excited about that I want to encourage you to be a part of. So I don't know what youth ministry looks like in 2021. I think we're still figuring that out, but that's kind of our history with how we've dealt with students and young people. But I want to give you a little insight to what youth ministries are struggling with right now, what's the most difficult thing. And even our team right now, like we've got a big appetite for where God's taking us. And our whole season, the thing we're most focused on right now is growing our leadership team, um, adding people to our team that show up on a consistent basis to minister to students. It's very difficult to do that, but to open your eyes to why that should be shocking, um, please raise your hand if you are a teenager or someone under the age of 18 in this room. Just go ahead, raise your hand, Judah. We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She won't raise her hand, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We have 14, you can go ahead and put your hands on. 14 teenagers in the room or young people. How many adults are in the room? You don't have to raise your hand. 
why are youth ministries struggling to maintain a one to four or one to five adult to student ratio? We have 14 young people in the room. I know we have more than 50 adults in the room. And I'm, I'm not saying you need to join our youth team. It's not a guilt or shame thing. But it is crazy to me that there are young people with their hands raised a moment ago that may potentially be going through the motions of their faith without someone to come alongside them and help them. Do you hear what I'm saying? And you look at the numbers. Church attendance, 65 and up. Uh, 64 to 30. 18 to 0. It's like this. Look at all the studies. Barna, all the studies. There's just not very many young people in the church anymore. It, by and large, it's, it's people with gray hair who faithfully attend church. And you've modeled faithfulness and attendance well. But how and why are we letting the young people slip through our fingers? And I think it comes back to the heart of First Peter chapter 5. I'm going to reread his instruction to the elders of the church, and I want you to think about what he's saying in light of what's happened in the church. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Care for the flock that God has entrusted you to. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. That's his instructions. And to those 14 young people with their hand raised, let me just charge you here, there, across the room. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. We have to listen. We have to believe that God has spoken to them. We have to believe that the true way that they are following is better than the new way that we're trying to create. We don't have to be trailblazers, young people. We don't have to do it completely different. We don't have to throw it all out. There is bad that the older generation has given to us, but there's a lot of good too. Judah, listen to your parents. Good. Finally, Peter doesn't just address the old, he doesn't just address the young, but he actually addresses both. And his main instruction to all of us is simple. He says it three times in the next like eight verses. Cover yourselves in humility. Cover yourselves in humility. This is the key to us doing intergenerational ministry well. Cover yourself in humility. The young generation thinks that the older generation just, they think they have it all together and they know better and blah, 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 just because they're old. They don't know anything. That's, what, that's our perception. I don't think that's true. And then the older generation looks at the younger and says, those whippersnappers, they, they think that blah, 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 they can't do anything. What are they going to do? Like, they, they're going to learn. They're going to learn that my way is the best way. And we, we have this, like, pitting against each other. There's no humility in that. And I think it stems, I almost always land my messages with this. Um, Pastor Eric, if you want to come up now, it would be a good time. I almost always end my message with this. I think it's the solution to every problem. Yes, it's Jesus, but it's not that simple. Peter cares about the church doing intergenerational ministry well. He tells the old to model, to lead by example. Don't just teach them the way, but show them the way. That goes a really long way with young people. Um, If you ask them, like, what your biggest pet peeve is, it's inauthenticity and hypocrisy. We sniff it out a mile away. And that's why, like, church scandals and embezzlement and affairs of pastors, like, is so damaging to our young people's faith. It's huge. That is a bigger threat than, like, evolution or, I don't know, something that's, like, belief system. Like, watching people as Christians fail and let you down, that's, that's the biggest issue. But, um, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 talking about how we get to humility. Humility is the answer. It's the key. It's the secret sauce that's going to get us to actually do intergenerational ministry well. The old believing they actually have something to learn from the young. The young accepting the authority of the old. He says this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares, and the Amplified Version says, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on him. For he cares about you with deepest affection. 
and watches over you very carefully. The reason that is how you get to humility is because one of the primary reasons we do not walk with humility is because if I'm thinking about others, who's going to think about me? Did you get that jump? If I'm more concerned about how others are doing and I'm thinking less of myself and more of others, who is going to think about me? Who's going to look out for me? It's open-handed living. When Emily Miklos commits two hours on a Wednesday night to loving students and listening to whatever is going on in their life and encouraging them, she could be thinking, man, those two hours would be really helpful for school and my work or my home. Like, I could really get that time back if I just didn't join the youth team. But she did. She's thinking of others. She's living open-handedly. And she's casting all of her cares and anxieties and burdens to him. That's the key. When we give of ourselves, we have to trust that someone else is going to give to us. But we know that the greatest source in Jesus has us covered. He has our back. He will take care of our time. He will take care of our finances. He will care for us. And when we make that jump, we can walk with humility. And our generations don't have to be pitted against each other, but they can benefit each other. And I think the prime, like I love where we're soaping right now through First Samuel. I love the Saul-David war. The reason I love it is because it's such an example of what not to do. Saul is insecure. He's not giving his anxieties to the Lord. He's not trusting the Lord. He's trying to do it in his own strength. He's not others-focused. And he misses out on an opportunity to mentor one of the greatest kings who have ever lived, King David. Think about how Saul could have helped David avoid all the mistakes he did make. That's my hope and prayer for you as a generation of not... 18 and under, but people who are adults, I hope that you would see yourself as a Saul who takes care of David and not a Saul who's against David. Because it really matters that we get this right. Fast forward two generations and the church could look much different if we don't tackle this. My charge to each group, my charge to the old is this. Sorry for calling you old first. Elders, as Peter calls you. Lead by example and lead with grace for those coming up in the faith. Be okay with using new methods for the same old gospel. Understand that the future of the church is at stake. We have to get this right. My final thing to you, and I think this is actually the most important thing for you as an older generation, if you're going to say yes, whether, whether it's joining the youth team or, or investing in your children with a newfound love or investing in your grandchildren with a newfound love or uh, volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club, whatever you choose to do, for Pete's sake, invest in the next, but for Pete's sake, be consistent. Gen Z is referred to as the abandoned generation. They've had a coach come into their life and then leave. They've had a parent and a boyfriend of their parents and a new boyfriend and a new girlfriend and a new girlfriend and they've had step-parents and the foster care system. We are watching the most abandoned generation ever and the last, the worst thing you can do is be really solid in their life for a short period of time and then leave them reinforcing that they are not actually loved. To the young, to the 14 of us in this room that are young, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Trust that the older generation knows something that you don't. Trust that they actually know something that we don't, that we don't have it all together. It's so hard to talk seriously to you, Judah, with those sunglasses on. You're very cool, though. I know. To the young, let's listen before we speak. We've got a lot of time to speak. Let's start our lives out listening. And be willing to learn that you don't actually have it all together and invite others to help you when you failed. To all of us, the young, the old, walk in a covering of humility, trusting that Jesus will build his church. I'm not ever going to give you a strategy that's going to work perfectly. Let's believe the best about the next generation. Let's take time to listen to them. Let's be consistent. I want to close this morning with two stories that I just adore that are beautiful examples of what I'm talking about. 
I'm going to start again with Pastor Ron, and I don't know if the Lucas family is here this morning, but um, Robert Lucas is one of our students in uh, BSM. A year ago in October, he came for, like last year October, he came for the first time, crossed his arms downstairs. I asked him, did your mom make you come? He said, yeah, I don't want to be here. He's just not, he didn't want to be around at all. And thank God Renee brought him. Fast forward to now, he's a student leader in our youth ministry. He's taking responsibility for mentoring middle schoolers. But not only that, him and Pastor Ron are sitting down every week having a one-on-one. How's your soul? How are you doing? They talk through a leadership principle that we do as a group. And they're working on a project together. Robert's project, I just want to brag on him. He's creating, and you'll hear more about this soon, he's creating a a resource for families. A student is writing a resource for families on missions and Speed the Light. We're selling pizza kits through Little Caesars to raise money. Um, Every pizza kit you buy gives $6 towards missions. We're trying to raise like a billion dollars for missions. So buy a lot of pizza. But Robert is writing this curriculum, him and Pastor Ron are working on it together, where you can sit down with your kid in the 15 minutes that the pizza's in the oven and talk them through how many lost people are in the world and what the equivalent of how many pepperonis that is and how many pizzas to stack up to the 1.3 billion lost people. He's got missionary quotes um, from different missionaries and discussion questions. Robert Lucas is writing this and Pastor Ron is helping him. Second example is my wife Anna and uh, Julia Moore, who is just wonderful. She has personally taken it upon herself to ensure that every new student that comes to our youth ministry feels welcomed and has a follow-up process after they come so that we don't have people come once and never come back. It's not me doing that. It's not a leader doing that. It's a student who says, we've had 94 new students since January. that, That happened, yeah. And of those who became uh, regular attenders, I think we're around like 65% of those become regular weekly attenders. Um, But Julia cares about that other 40-some percent. She's like, let's figure that out. So she's putting together gift bags that you give to new students and follow-up emails or text messages. Like, and Anna is sitting down with her as an, honestly, as an expert in that type of thing, mentoring her, asking her how she's doing, how's cheer going, how's your soul? Have you been reading scripture lately? That's what it looks like. And whether that's done through our official youth ministry program or it's just something you choose to do with your nephew or your niece because you care about this next generation actually following Jesus, for Pete's sake, invest in the next. I'm going to close now with prayer just over us as a church body that we would get this, we would run with this that we would embrace this idea of investing in the next, that we would take Peter's words seriously and we'd know this matters and we're going to get it right. Jesus, thank you for this group of people. I pray right now that you would speak to us as to what young people we are called to reach. What young people have you called me to minister to, to mentor, to love on? I pray right now that we would, as a church, believe in investing in the next and that we would go after the next generation And that we would actually see an incline in the church attendance of young people. But more than that, that we would see people's lives transformed. That we as a church would have intergenerational ministry. Those of us who are 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20 teenagers, we would all see it as a continuity of faith, a beautiful mosaic of backgrounds and experiences. That we would help one another out. We would learn from one another. We would believe that Jesus has our back and so we can be other-minded and trust in him. Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a church that believes in the next generation, that is committed to them with our time, talents, treasures, and plans. So Lord, bless us as we endeavor to do this well. Lord, may we never lose sight of what you called us to, the Great Commission. So thank you, Jesus, for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. And I pray right now that you would empower us and that your Holy Spirit would create moments and opportunities to reach the next generation for you, Lord. Pray favor and blessings over all of us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.